The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes a tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Okay, we are in Joshua 16. It's verses 1 through 10. That is the entire chapter, which is rare. It's a very short chapter in Joshua. This is entitled, The Inheritance of Joseph Ephraim. The lot fell to the children of Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho, to the waters of Jericho on the east, to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel, then went out from Bethel to Lutz, passed along to the border of the Archites at Atarot, and went down westward to the boundary of the Japhletites, as far as the boundary of lower Beit Haron to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. The border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. The border of their inheritance on the east side was Atarot Adar, as far as Upper Bet Haron. And the border went out toward the sea on the north side of Mikmatat. Then the border went around eastward to Ta'anashilo and passed by it on the east of Janoha. Then it went down from Janoha to Atarot and Naara, reached to Jericho and came out at the Jordan. The border went out from Tapua westward to the brook Kana and it ended at the sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim, according to their families. 
The separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages, and they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. In the weeks before typing this sermon, a new technology was introduced. It is so important information-wise that it is believed to be as big of a leap forward as it was from flipping through the yellow pages to doing an online search. What's more, it isn't limited to simply searching out information, but developing new ways to produce information. I'll explain that right now by telling you that this past week, Sergio needed to do something in my computer. And so he, instead of writing a program himself, which he's fully capable of doing, which might take two hours, he typed into this program that I'm talking about the instructions. And it came back and it typed the thing in about two seconds. And there were some errors in there which he had to identify uh, because obviously you're making things that you want and it's thinking one thing and you have to keep giving instructions and correcting things. But it saved him all kinds of effort in doing this. It wrote a program, okay? Amazing, something that never has happened in the history of the world. So, in other words, we may have an idea that we would like to express, and this program is capable of producing it. For instance, I'd like to search out acrostics in the Bible, something we did in the book of Esther. In the past, actually, we didn't, Sergio did, and I got the benefit of it. But in the past, that was limited to doing a personal word-by-word check of each letter in an entire text. That is a long, tedious, and laborious task, even for a very short passage. That was shortened immeasurably some years ago by a code that was written, by Sergio, by the way, to have a computer do the exact same thing in just a few hours. With this new technology, it may be possible to first write a code that could not only do this almost instantaneously, but it may be able to go beyond that to a code that compiles those acrostics into meaningful sentences with little or no human involvement. Sergio and I thought of this at basically the same time. Maybe it is something that can be put together. If so, it would speed up the process of uncovering the Bible's mysteries in a way that was once unfathomable. Our text verse comes from Ephesians chapter 1. It's verses 15 through 21. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. The text verse today is like a short explanation of what is being seen in the 10 verses set before us. If you come back and read these words that I just read you again after the sermon, I think you will agree. The thing about it is that I was able to do all of this research in a bit under 11 hours. I never had to get up from the desk to find a book to help me with the Hebrew. I didn't need to flip through a book by Abarim explaining the meaning of names in the Bible. 
No map of Israel needed to be unfolded and poured over. All of these resources were at the tip of my fingers. But these things were necessary just a few years ago. The same work would not have been possible for me to do in this manner in order to present the same sermon on it. Instead of 11 hours, I doubt it could have been done in 11 days of 11 hours each. I had a hot pad on my back, a heater by my feet because it was a cold day, and some gummy bears to eat instead of being hunched over a pile of books with a wood fire to tend to. We live in an amazing time, at least from an information perspective, and information is what I have for you today. There is an analysis of the verses, an explanation of the meaning of the words, and then a presentation of what they are telling us about the coming of the Messiah. Great things such as these are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you. The first is the borders of the tribe of Joseph, which is verses 1 through 4. Chapter 15 dealt with the borders of the land of Judah, the inheritance of Caleb within those borders, but separate from them as a personal inheritance, and then the cities contained within those borders. With that complete, the account now turns to the inheritance of the great house of Joseph, the favored son of Israel. His name means he shall add, with the secondary meaning of take away. It is he who received the right of the firstborn, the double portion. This is specifically noted in 1 Chronicles 5 verse 2, where it says, Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. Joseph's two eldest sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were adopted by Jacob, who is Israel, as described in Genesis 48. Their inheritance in Canaan includes both Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The first task is to decide the borders of Joseph's inheritance, inclusive of both sons. That begins with, verse 1, the lot fell to the children of Joseph. Yosef, And went out the lot sons Joseph. The word yatsa signifies to go or come out. As such, it is likely that the lots are either in a pot and dropped out, or they are cast out of the hand. From there, the lots were read as to how they wound up. Another possible meaning is that the words went out are speaking of the actual borders to be described. They went out to the children of Joseph from one point to another. This, however, is unlikely based on the other uses of the word. Either way, the lot went out to indicate the border. Verse 1 continues, from the Jordan by Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east. From Jordan, Jericho, to waters, Jericho, eastward. Jordan means descender. Jericho means place of fragrance. As for this southern border itself, it is not the northern border of Judah as one might expect. Rather, it will be the northern border of Benjamin that will be between Judah and Ephraim. Hence, even though Benjamin's lot will come out later, it will be in the highly favored position which includes the area of Jerusalem on Judah's northern border. As for the words, two waters of Jericho, that means to the stream which is in the area of Jericho which comes up at the fountain now known as Ain es Sultan. It is the waters that are healed in the account of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2. From there it flows into the Jordan. 
Next, the description says, verse 1 going on, to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel. The translation is wrong. The word to is not in the Hebrew. Hamidbar ole mirecho bahar beit el. The wilderness ascending from Jericho in the mountain Bethel. With the clauses taken together, the error in translation becomes evident. Here's what it would say. From Jordan Jericho to waters Jericho eastward, the wilderness ascending from Jericho in the mountain Bethel. Thus, the words the wilderness are given to describe the condition of this portion of the lot, not to define the border. This is evident from the words of Joshua 18 verse 12 when referring to Benjamin's northern border. Here's what it says there. And the border is to them at the north side from the Jordan. And the border hath gone up unto the side of Jericho on the north and gone up through the hill country westward and its outgoings have been at the wilderness of Beth-Aven. That's Joshua 18 verse 12 from Young's literal translation. Bethel means house of God. With this initial border defined, it, verse 2, then went out from Bethel to Lutz. The seemingly simple words are actually very complicated. Vayatsa mi bet el Lutza, and went out from Bethel unto Lutz word. The problem is that elsewhere, Lutz and Bethel are noted as the same place, such as Genesis 28, 19, and he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Lutz previously. And then again, Genesis 35, 6, so Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. Without being dogmatic, Adam Clark may be right. He says, it is very likely that the place where Jacob had the vision was not in Lutz, but in some place within a small distance of that city or village, and that sometimes the whole place was called Bethel, at other times Lutz, and sometimes, as in the case above, the two places were distinguished. As we find the term London comprises not only London, but also the city of Westminster and the borough of Southwark, though at other times all three are distinctly mentioned. Lutz means almond, but it comes from the verb Lutz, meaning to turn aside often in a negative way. Here are examples of both. From Proverbs 3, My son, let them not depart, Lutz, from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. And then from Isaiah 30, Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity, the word Lutz, and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Hence, it can mean departure, but it also means twisted or perverse. From there, the border, verse 2 continues, passed along to the border of the Archites at Atorot. Ve'avar el-gebul ha'arki Atorot. And passed over unto border the Archite Atorot. Atorot means crowns. Archite comes from arak, to be long or to prolong. Thus it means long or prolonging. This would be the home of Hushai the Archite, noted as David's friend and a wise counselor in 2 Samuel 15. Next, verse 3, and went down westward to the boundary of the Japhletites. Ve'yarad yama ha yafleti, and went down westward unto border the Japhletite. From a northerly and then a southwesterly movement, the border now heads westward. The name Japhlet comes from palat, to escape or to deliver. 
Hence, it means he, meaning God, will deliver. Next, verse 3 continues, as far as the boundary of lower Beit Horon to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. Ad gevu Beit Horon tachton ve'ad gazer ve'hayu totso to yama. Unto border Beit Horon lower and unto Gezer and its outgoings seaward. Beit Horon means house of the hollow and also house of freedom. Gezer means part or portion. Verse 4. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. Ve yinchalu bene Yosef, Manasseh, ve Ephraim, and inherit sons Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. It is a concluding statement concerning the land granted to Joseph, which includes both sons, remembering that Manasseh has land on both sides of the Jordan. But this is specifically the land allotted within the borders of Canaan. Ephraim means twice fruitful, and ashes as well. Manasseh means both he shall forget and from a debt of this parcel. Cambridge says the territory assigned to the house of Joseph may be roughly estimated at 55 miles from east to west by 70 from north to south. He shall add to the inheritance granted to him today by being productive and working with his hand. The crops will sprout and the people will say, look at the bounty, isn't it grand? He shall do this when he takes away the reproach we bore that clung to us. In him, there is a brand new day for those who call out to Jesus. The borders have been drawn out and they have a story to tell us. In reading that story, we will raise a shout to the marvelous workings of our Lord Jesus. Our second thought today is the borders of Ephraim. It's verses 5 through 10. Verse 5, the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. Now that the borders of the land allotted to Joseph have been determined, it must be divided among his two sons adopted by Jacob, who is Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. Of them, the first portion to be delineated will be the younger son, Ephraim. That begins with, verse 5 continues, the border of their inheritance on the east side was Atorot Adar, as far as Upper Bit Horon. There's very little information on the borders of the areas given to Joseph. The words are short, abrupt, and seem incomplete. They are also difficult to pin down. As for these words, they read, Vehi gevu nachalatam mizraha atrot adar ad bet choron elion, and was border their inheritance eastward atrot adar unto bet choron upper. Atorotadar means crowns of greatness or majestic crowns. Here, a distinction is made between upper Beit Horon and lower Beit Horon in verse 3. It is believed to be a bit eastward of lower Beit Horon. Next it says, verse 6, and the border went out toward the sea on the north side of Mikmatat. Veyatsa hagevul hayama ha Michmatat mi tzafon, and went out the border, the seaward, the Michmatat, from north. As difficult as the words were to translate in verse 5, Kyle says of these words, the first clause of Joshua 16.6 is perfectly inexplicable and must be corrupt. They always say things like that when they don't know what the Lord is saying in the word. Happens all the time. And I understand because any translator would look at them and they would say, this makes no sense at all. But that's the point. These Hebrew scribes for thousands of years kept these words, even though they didn't seem to make any sense. 
because these words have meaning in and of themselves when they point to Christ. The text doesn't corrupt our thinking and understanding of what the text is telling us is. Almost every translation of these words varies, trying to somehow clear up what is being conveyed. If nothing else, at least the name Mikmatat can be defined. Strong says it is apparently derived from an unused root meaning to hide. Thus, it means concealment or maybe hiding place. As it is prefixed by an article, it would be the hiding place. Next, verse 6 continues, Then the border went around eastward to Ta'anashilo and passed by it on the east of Janoha. Vedasav hagebu mizraha ta'anat shilo ve'avar oto mi mizraha yanoha, and went around the border eastward ta'anat shilo and passed over it from east janoha. The word ta'anat comes from ta'ana. It signifies an occasion such as was used in Judges 14, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. The name Shiloh, as used here, is not speaking of the coming Messiah. It is derived from Shalah, to be quiet or at ease, and thus something like tranquility. The two words together can be defined as discovered haven. The name Janoha is derived from Yanach, to put or place. That in turn comes from Nuach, meaning to rest. Hence it means rest, or he will give rest. Verse 7, then it went down from Janoha to Atorot and Naara, reached to Jericho, and came out at the Jordan. Ve'yarad mi Yanoha Atorot ve'na'arata and descended from Janoha, Atorot, and Naara word, and impinged in Jericho and went out the Jordan. The Atorot here is believed to be different than the one mentioned in verse 16 too. Again, it means crowns. The name Naara is identical to Naara, a girl or a young woman who is of marriageable age. Hence, we can just call her girl. Verse 8, the border went out from Tapua westward to the brook Kana. Mi Tapuach yelek hagevu yama nachal Kana. From Tapua goes the border westward brook Kana. Tapuach comes from nafach, signifying to breathe or to blow. Thus, it may be breath. It also means love apple being identical to Tapuach, found in Proverbs 25, verse 11, and several times in the Song of Solomon. The word translated as brook, Nahal, is a torrent, but it is the same as Nahal, meaning an inheritance, which is used in the next sentence of this verse. The name Kana comes from Kane, reeds, hence it is the brook of reeds. But the reed is used as a measuring stick, coming from the verb Kana, meaning to acquire, or to possess. Hence, I would translate the two words together as inheritance of the possessor. Of this border, it next says, verse 8 continues, and it ended at the sea, vehayu totsotav hayama, and its outgoings, the seaward. The border ends at the Mediterranean Sea. Of the borders described, and as complicated as they actually are to understand and properly delineate, Charles Ellicott gives a brief and concise summary of what has been presented. He says, We thus obtain for the territory of Ephraim four boundary lines, namely, 
A, the plain of the Jordan on the east, B, the line of hills bordering the Shephelah on the west, C, the brook Cana and the line passing through to Anashilo and Janoha to Jordan on the north, and D, the north border of Benjamin, Joshua 16, 1 through 3, and Joshua 18, 12 through 14 on the south. Verse 8 continues. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim according to their families. Zot nachalat mate bene Ephraim le mishpotam. This inheritance tribe sons Ephraim to their families. The borders, as difficult to trace as they may be, are defined by the locations set forth in these past few verses. With that, a special note concerning cities not within these borders is given to ensure there is no confusion as time passed. Properly rendered, verse 8 should probably end with a semicolon, and verse 9 then provides explanation. Verse 9, the separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. Ve'arim ha-mibdalot livne Ephraim betok Nachalat bene Menashe kal he'arim ve'chatzrehen, and the cities, the separated sons Ephraim, in midst inheritance, sons Manasseh, all the cities and their villages. Here is a word found nowhere else in scripture, mibdalah. It comes from badal, meaning to divide or to separate. Thus it is the separated cities. Taken together with the previous verse, the whole thought should essentially read as this. This is the inheritance of the tribes, sons of Ephraim, to their families, and the cities, the separated, belonging to the sons of Ephraim, in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Manasseh, all the cities and their villages. The meaning is that there were certain cities within the borders of Manasseh that will belong to the inheritance of Ephraim. A specific note concerning them is found in the next chapter. Here's what it says in Joshua 17. And the territory of Manasseh was found from Asher to Mikmatat, that lies east of Shechem, and the border went along south to the inhabitants of En Tapua. Manasseh had the land of Tapua, but Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the children of Ephraim. And the border descended to the brook Cana, southward to the brook. These cities of Ephraim are among the cities of Manasseh. The border of Manasseh was on the north side of the brook, and it ended at the sea. You'll get a full explanation of that next week, unless we're raptured or you don't show up or I die or something. The same is true with Manasseh having cities that were within the borders of Issachar and Asher. It is speculated by some that because Ephraim was the larger tribe, they needed these cities. Others suppose it is a way of maintaining the brotherly bond between the two by having this arrangement. Charles Ellicott provides a reasonable explanation while using an understandable example. He says, This fact would manifestly tend to produce a solidarity among the several tribes and to prevent disunion by creating common interests. The interest of the stronger tribes would be served by completing the conquest of the territory assigned to the weaker. And the general formation thus produced would resemble that which was known by the name of the tetsudo or tortoise in Roman warfare. When a body of soldiers approached the wall of a town, which it was intended to assault, they sometimes held their shields over them, overlapping like scales, each man's shield partly sheltering his own and partly his neighbor's body, so that no missile could penetrate. 
Thus it may be said, not only of Jerusalem, but all of the tribes in the land of their possession, that they were built as a city that is compact together, and as a unity in itself, united by joints and bands, so that if one member of the body politic should suffer, all the members must suffer with it. Keep that in mind when we read this last verse. With the borders now fully expressed for Ephraim, the chapter ends on a failing note, one not unique to the tribes of Israel. The same thought was seen concerning Judah in verse 1563, and it will be seen again as we progress. Verse 10, and they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. The whole purpose that Charles Ellicott, I believe, rightly deduced is that they should come together and do their job. They didn't do. And no dispossessed the Canaanite, the dwelling in Gezer. In these words, there is a difference between what was said in verse 1563 and what is now presented. Of the Jebusites, it said that Judah could not drive them out. However, here it simply says they did not drive them out. Though seemingly the same on the surface, it does not appear that they actually should be considered comparable. That is because of the next words. Verse 10 continues, But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day. And dwell the Canaanite in midst Ephraim until the day the this. Not only could Judah not drive out the Jebusites, but compare the two statements from Judah and dwell the Jebusite with sons Judah in Jerusalem until the day this. And then from Ephraim, and dwell the Canaanite in midst Ephraim until the day the this. It may be just an excuse to make the sermon longer, or it may be that the wording is purposeful. Judah couldn't drive them out. They were in a fortified location, as will be noted in 2 Samuel 5, and that location is on the border of Judah and Benjamin. On the other hand, nothing is said about any difficulty here. Further, they are in the midst of Ephraim, meaning they could be isolated and eventually starved out. And more, it says, verse 10 finishes with, and have become forced laborers. Vehi le mas obed, and become to a burden work. It appears that this is a marriage of convenience for Ephraim and one of inconvenience but acceptable tolerance to the Canaanite. It is exactly what the Lord warned against and commanded not to occur. It is an early foreboding of bad times ahead. Words that seem obscure or even wrong are set before us and we wonder why. But like the beauty of a heavenly song, they contain treasure that money cannot buy. In them there is a story waiting to be drawn out. Wonderful words that reveal amazing things to us. They are waiting to be seen as if ready to shout about the glorious work of our Lord Jesus. Thank you, O oh God, for this precious word. Thank you for the delightful treasures waiting for us. When they are read out and we have heard, we will again thank you for our precious Lord, Jesus. Our third thought today is pictures of Christ. The first three verses of the chapter dealt with the overall lot that fell to Joseph. He shall add, take away. In verse 1, it was described as from Jordan, the descender, Jericho, meaning place of fragrance, to waters Jericho, again, place of fragrance, eastward, which means to arise or to appear. That is then explained as the wilderness, a place of testing, but also of closeness to God. 
ascending from Jericho, meaning the place of fragrance, to Bethel, the house of God. Verse 2 says the border then went out from Bethel, the house of God, toward Lutz, meaning departure. From there it passed over unto the Archite, long or prolonging at Atrot, meaning crowns. From there, verse 3 says the border descended westward unto the Japhletite. He, meaning God, will deliver. Then continued unto the border of lower Beit Horon, which is the lower house of freedom, and to Gezer, part or portion, and ended at the sea. With that, verse 4 noted that the children of Joseph, he shall add, and Manasseh, he shall forget, and from a debt, and Ephraim, twice fruitful, or ashes, took their inheritance. The verses anticipate the details of Christ's coming and the scope of his work as seen in the three named, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Joseph anticipates Christ who takes away man's reproach and then who adds him to God's people. Manasseh pictures Christ who came to pay Adam's debt and who, in the process, allows that debt to be forgotten before God. Ephraim looks to Jesus. He is twice fruitful in the land of his affliction, prevailing over the law, and thus becoming the savior of Jew and Gentile. But his work also meant that sin was judged in him, thus the ashes signifying his afflictions. It is Jesus who descended from heaven, bringing the water of life, signified by the waters of Jericho, in his appearing. He went through the wilderness, the testing, and yet he remained in closeness to God through it. Bethel here anticipates Christ Jesus, the man in whom God dwells, as is noted in John 2 verse 19, where he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. His body is the house of God. From there he went to the cross, symbolized by Lutz, meaning departure, but the cross could not hold him, symbolized by the archite, the prolonging. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong a rock, his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's Isaiah 53:10. In this, the crowns were bestowed, the crown of the cross and the crown of eternal life among many others, as we see in Revelation 19:12. The trek went to he meaning God will deliver the Japhletite, perfectly explained by the 22nd Psalm. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver, palat him, since he delights in him. God did deliver him, and he came out of the tomb, the lower house of freedom, from which he was granted his part among the living. From there, the border ended at the sea, westward, the place where God resides, ever westward. It was actually at this time that the note about the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. That was described already, but it was because of this work of Christ as outlined in the borders that the symbolism of the names is fully understood. Logically, their explanation fits right here in the order in which things were presented, but I explained them prior to provide a basis to understand the subsequent verses in advance. With that, it then turned to the borders of Ephraim, twice fruitful, and ashes. The border was eastward, to arise or appear is what the east means. Atorot Adar, majestic crowns, unto upper Beit Horon, the upper house of freedom. From there it went out westward toward the sea, on the north, meaning hidden, side of Mikmatat, the hiding place. 
From there it went eastward to arise or appear to Ta'anashilo, the discovered haven, and passed by on the east of Janoha, he will give rest. Then it descended from there to Atrot, meaning crowns, and Na'ara, girl, and reached to Jericho, the place of fragrance, and came out at the Jordan, the descender. Then it went out from Tapua, meaning breath, westward to the Brokana, the inheritance of the possessor, and its outgoings were seaward. It pictures the effects, just like we saw with Judah, the work of Christ on these borders, the effects on these borders. We're seeing the same thing happen again. The effects of Christ's work for his people. Those who arise to the call of the gospel are given their majestic crowns of life. Revelation 2 verse 10. And righteousness, 2 Timothy 4 8, which are imperishable. 1 Corinthians 9 25. The border going west is the effect of the gospel, drawing us to God who is ever west while we are hidden in the hiding place, meaning Christ. That's Colossians 3, verse 3. Going eastward to Ta'anashilo is the arising of the discovered haven, the place for those who come to Christ. This is offered by Christ, symbolized by Yanoha. He will give rest. The border went down to Atrot, crowns signifying the rewards of coming to Christ, and Na'ara, girl, the church is a female entity of marriageable age, reaching to Jericho, picturing heaven, coming out at the Jordan. The descending of Christ for his church in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Remember that, because we have a sermon coming up that will describe that in detail. From there, Tapua signifies the breath of eternal life that comes at that time as we move toward God westward to the inheritance of the possessor, meaning eternal life in Christ is realized, accompanied by eternally moving toward God, symbolized by the outgoings of the border being seaward. The final verses mention the cities, though not named, including cities in Manasseh. It also noted that all of the Canaanites were not dispossessed. This is a historical note about the situation in which Ephraim found itself, and it will be a part of the continued lesson of life under the law. Symbolically, it may, and this is total speculation on Charlie Garrett's part, signify that there are unconverted in the church who will always be there right until the end. They may serve the church, but they are not a part of the people of the church. Regardless of that, the borders of the two tribes form a grand picture of Christ and his work the borders of Ephraim form another marvelous picture of the effects of his work in the people of the church. The patterns form up in exactly the manner that would be expected of an evaluation of these things. And some of the words, and how they are used later in the Bible to refer to the coming of the Messiah, completely surprised me. I would think, I wonder if this is the word that is being referred to in that particular psalm. Upon checking, it is exactly what I thought might be the case. And the reason why that's so unusual is because one word can be translated many ways, or many words can be translated the same way. And yet the word that they are using here was the same word that is, in my mind, thinking, I bet you that points to that in the Psalms or in Isaiah, and there it is. This happened again and again and again, as does in sermons like these. Each piece fits and then builds upon something else, so that when we enter the New Testament— the foundation has been laid, and we can then compare it to what is presented there. It never gets old because it is so beautifully woven together. And because of this, be assured and be reassured that you are following the right path. 
God has set it all down for us to see and also to build up our confidence concerning Christ Jesus. How blessed we are to see such things. And if you're just hearing about the Lord being hidden in the Old Testament, check it out. You will find it is so. Jesus said it was all about him. Put your trust in this wonderful Lord who has revealed such marvelous things to us. Call on Jesus and be a part of what God is doing in the world. And time is short, so do it today. It's amazing that this keeps happening, and you're, we got a lot more borders to go through, believe me. we got lots of borders, and every one of them is telling us a story. I just kind of gave you away one of the sermons that's coming, but i got to tell you what, I was totally, totally floored when I did that sermon. Couldn't believe it. It's coming up in maybe four or five more. So I don't remember. What. Actually, it would be maybe five or six because we got something coming up soon. What is it? <laughs> got to stop what I'm doing. Monday, tomorrow, I've got to type a Resurrection Day sermon. Okay, so... Push that one back a little bit, but when you get there, I know, I told you guys a few weeks ago, it's the most refreshing sermon I've typed in a long time. I'm not saying it's the best and it's not my favorite or anything like that, but when I was done, I felt like I had just taken a long cold shower. It was wonderful. Cold shower on a hot day, not a cold shower. (laughs) Anyway, the point of all this, all of this, is to ground us in our faith about what is coming in the New Testament. And the point of the New Testament is to explain what Jesus Christ has done for the people of the world. It's very simple. We have sin in us. Christ was sinless. He offered his perfection in exchange for our imperfection. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. That is the constant theme of every church on this planet. I don't mean every church absolutely. There are lots of good churches out there. But every church out there, every denomination that gets away from the simple gospel message has failed. I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this. And you're always working to do what he has already done. And all it does is it diminishes the importance of this right here, that Jesus Christ did everything for our salvation. He is the fulfillment of every single type and picture that we have seen since Genesis 1 verse 1. He's the fulfillment of them. Everything about it says that come to me and be saved from yourself. You can't earn this. It can only be received by grace. Anything else will offend God who did the work. And so please give up on self. Come to Jesus Christ through his shed blood and be reconciled to God. And once it's done, folks, it is done. It is forever. It's not one ever or two ever or three ever. It is forever. Come to Jesus Christ, okay? Our closing verse comes from John 5, 39. I said this during the sermon, proof of it right here. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Everything in this Bible points to Jesus, either explicitly, implicitly, in typology, in pictures, in some way or another, it is all pointing to the coming of the Messiah, all of it. That's why it's in there. You get an obscure story about a guy sleeping with his two daughters in a cave, and you wonder, why is that in there? Because it's pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And probably most of you know this because you've heard the sermon, but if you don't know that the first daughter slept with her father, and she got pregnant, and then the second daughter went in, and she got pregnant. What does that have to do with Jesus? The first one is a mother of Jesus through her genealogy. The second one is a mother through of Jesus through her genealogy. He's a son of the Ammonites, and he's a son of the Moabites. Ruth is a Moabite, right? He's a descendant of Ruth. Well, 
there's a lady in the uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, married an Ammonite. And that is in the genealogy of Jesus. That's why the story is in there. It's to tell us they were trying to prolong the seed of their father because they were anticipating the Messiah. It's not that they were doing something that they thought was perverse. They were trying to ensure that they were in the line of the Messiah. The text says so. It's all there for Jesus. All of it. It's wonderful. And we make up stuff that is just far-fetched for no reason at all. We twist this Bible and the purity of it. Don't do that. Just trust in Christ and hand yourself over to him. Great, great God. Wonderful Lord. Beautiful Savior. Next week is Joshua 17, 1 through 13. Pretty great stuff, I must say. In fact, it is the best. It's entitled The Inheritance of Joseph, Manasseh, West. That'll be our 34th Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Marvelous things. He will do them. All right. I don't, I, I have now something that came from a lady that attends online, a young lady. I've known her since she was about this big, and she sent some uh, little angel pins. You can put it on here or wherever, and I'll give away one of these this week if you can answer this question. This is not going to be easy like the past three weeks. Somebody might get it. Although, uh, the one that I would think would get it is in Orlando right now, so it, it may not be the case. But, what Hebrew month did Solomon dedicate the temple in Jerusalem? The Hebrew month. There's all kinds of names of the months in there. No, that's not a Hebrew month. December is a pagan name. Okay. <laughs> Hebrew month. Now, I'm actually surprised because it suddenly dawned on me that we have somebody that is named after this month in the church today. June. The month of Ethanim. Ethan. My brother's name is Ethan. You all know him as Bones, but that's his name. It means perennial. Perennial. Okay? That's it. Okay, well, nobody got it. I, I'm sorry. This will be waiting for somebody next week, maybe. Okay, I got a poem for you, and then the Lord's Supper. This is the inheritance of Joseph, Ephraim. The lot fell to the children of Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho, to the waters of Jericho on the east as well, to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel. Then went out from Bethel to Lutz, passed along the border of the Archites at Atarot, as we know, and went down westward to the boundary of the Japhletites, as far as the boundary of lower Beth-Horon, to Gezer it did go. And it ended at the sea, and that not by chance. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. The border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus, as we continue on. The border of their inheritance was on the east side, was Atarotadar, as far as upper Bet-Horon. And the border went out toward the sea on the north side of Mikmatah, then the border went around eastward to Ta'anashilo and passed by it on the east of Janoha. Then it went down from Janoha to Atoro to Na'ara. It then went, reached to Jericho, and came out at the Jordan. This was its extent. The border went out from Tapua, extending quite nicely westward to the Brook Kana, and it ended at the sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim, According to their families, a nice patch of land, it would seem. 
The separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages where they could sing and dance. And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell something rather dumb among the Ephraimites to this day, and forced laborers they have become. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful stories you tell us in your word. You give us moral applications. You give us historical applications. You give us all kinds of wonderful things that we can know, prophetic applications, even typological applications. They're all there for us to see what you are doing in the stream of human existence for us. And it's all centered on our Lord. Thank you, oh God, for our Lord Jesus. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Somebody emailed me this past week, and he said, um, uh, Calvin used to do the Lord's Supper every two weeks. Uh, two weeks. I don't know why he picked two weeks, because it says as often as you meet, but maybe they only met every two weeks. I don't know. And then you get some churches that have it once every six months. And if you were at the Baptist church that I attended years and years ago, they would not really have the Lord's Supper so much as just a giant what do you call it when everybody, potluck. Oh man, was that good. Wow. But, you know, the Bible tells us to take the Lord's Supper. And it says to do it as often as we meet. And there's a reason for that. Is because we are fallible, sinful people. And we need to confess our week's transgressions before him. Okay? And people often email me and they say, well, it says, you know, if you're unworthy, don't take this. And I say the very fact that you think you're unworthy means you can take this. It's the people that come up here and think they deserve what the Lord has done for them that should not come forward. But if you've called on Jesus and if you believe in him as your savior and you've taken a moment to reflect on what you've done to offend him in the past week, come forward. 